you have a Bible with you or the Pew Bible, go ahead and open it up to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We are plugging away through the book of Deuteronomy. And actually, what we are going to see in tonight's reading is that we are beginning Moses' third speech in the book. The first speech began at 1-1. There we read, uh, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, etc., etc., then in 5.1, and Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, dot, 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 dot. And now we're going to see the same sort of thing in 29.1. I'll read the whole passage and then we'll discuss it together. Uh, the whole chapter, that is to say. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. Remember, Horeb is the term Deuteronomy uses for Mount Sinai. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourners who is in your camp, from the ones who chop your wood to the ones who draw your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you have passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations." Beware lest there is among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead you to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him. 
and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. In the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the affliction of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? And then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This is God's word. So to begin with, what we have here, verse 1 says, is a covenant made in Moab. Uh, it echoes back to chapter 4, the end of the first speech. There Moses talked about when you were at Mount Sinai, you didn't see a form. God appeared to you, you heard a voice in the fire, but you didn't see a form, and so therefore don't make idols after the form of anything. And here now it's saying, in addition to that covenant made at Horeb, when you didn't see God's form. Moses is also making a covenant here at Moab, and again it focuses on resisting the temptation to idolatry. So it's kind of a complex process that Deuteronomy lays out here. Uh, most of the book has been expositing, explaining the covenant that's already been made at Horeb, Mount Sinai. So it's uh, sermons on the law that was given at Mount Sinai. It's expanding that. But then the last couple chapters we've looked at, chapters 27 and 28, give instructions for this covenant renewal ceremony that will take place when Israel enters the land on Mount Ebel and Mount Gerizim near Shechem. So it's saying we made a covenant on Mount Sinai in the past. Here's all that that entails. When you enter the land and you get the goods, as it were, you need to renew this covenant. Say, we're still going to follow the Lord. We weren't just using him to get the promised land. But now here in the middle, Moses is making another covenant with Israel, uh, not simply his own idea. It says that the, the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel at Moab. I think the sense is Moses is saying, this is kind of the last time I'm going to have with you, and I want you to bind yourselves by covenant that you're going to continue this way. Perhaps a bad analogy, but I, I was at Presbytery last week, and one of the things we do there is examine men for ordination. Um, and when they are examined for ordination and pass that, then they have to sign their name to a ministerial obligation, saying, I will seek, uh, similar to your, your, your member vows that many of you have taken, but, but saying, likewise, they will submit to their brothers, they'll seek the peace and purity of our Presbytery. Um, 
Of course, they already have a covenant with God, and yet they're also to sign this additional covenant saying, yes, I'm going to leave Presbyterian, I'm going to go off to a church I'm going to serve, and I'll continue doing the sorts of things that I have been doing. And Moses is kind of doing the same thing here, placing them under covenant. Uh, this heading in verse 1 here extends chapter 29 through 32. We're just looking at the first part of that tonight. Uh, the downside of just looking at 29 only is we get to the point where Israel gets exiled, but we don't see the repentance and return, which we'll see uh, in two weeks when we come back to Deuteronomy. There's four basic parts to what we're looking at tonight. The first is in verses 2 through 9, basic covenant history. Okay, this covenant pattern is always God placing people under covenant on the basis of his past actions of redemption. Here in this basic covenant history, there's three elements. You guys see what they are here in verses 2 through 9? Three elements, three three. Uh, I don't know what you call them. If it was a history test, what would be the three things you need to remember from this first uh, seven verses here? Or two through nine. Yep, yeah. Deliverance from Egypt in verses two through four or two and three. Yeah, leading them and sustaining them in the desert, verses 5 and 6. We'll see if anyone can beat Dan Gibson to the third one. <laughs> Just teasing, Dan. Yeah, defeating these kings, Sion and Og. Yeah, so three basic elements to the history this far. The exodus from Egypt. Notice it says, you've seen what the Lord did before your eyes. Um, this morning I referenced several times Exodus 19, 4 through 6, when God says, uh, uh, if you listen to my, the voice, if you obey my voice, that's what he says, uh, you will be a royal priesthood and a holy nation to me. That little speech there in Exodus 19 begins, you have seen with your own eyes what I did in Egypt, how I brought you to myself, uh, and, and goes on. So it's the same sort of language here. Just a passing poetic observation. Notice there's a little bit of like a triplet rhythm here. You have seen what I did to Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land. The great trials, the signs, and the great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. It actually continues throughout this passage. I noticed a new one just as we were wrapping up, or just as I was reading this at the end. Uh, verse 28, jumping ahead. The Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath. So just a passing observation that there's kind of a little stylistic device of these triplets in this passage. But what they have seen is the mighty works of God. Uh, the same thing Peter says that the church proclaims that we looked at this morning, the mighty works of God. And yet, verse 4, uh, I don't, Emily, were you aware of this verse when you, when you quoted that from Jesus? Yeah, uh, uh, a happy coincidence. But verse 4 is interesting. But the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, an eye to see, or an ear to hear. Uh, it's saying that in addition to having simply seen what the Lord did in Egypt, there's more. The Lord's internal work is necessary for having seen his mighty acts to become transformative. Okay, so simply seeing them alone is insufficient. 
This language continues throughout the Bible. Uh, Isaiah's call famously, uh, Isaiah is to preach to the people, and yet their ear or their eye will not see, their ear will not hear, lest their heart understand, they turn and repent. Uh, I guess I need a bookmarker. There we go. Um, Looking ahead, just to a couple passages real quick. Um, At the end of our passage that we read just now, Israel is basically in exile. It's saying, I'm going to uproot them from their land. That's jumping ahead. A couple prophecies from Jeremiah and Ezekiel look ahead to once Israel has already been sent into exile. Here's Jeremiah 24, beginning at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I regard as good the exiles from Judah who I have sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. I will set my eye on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. That uprooting language we'll see at the end of Deuteronomy 29. But here's the key verse, uh, Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and they shall return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah says the same thing again in chapter 31, verse 33. I will give them a heart. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 29 again. Here's Ezekiel, uh, beginning at verse 25 uh, or 24. I will take you from the nations where you've been exiled. I will gather you from all the countries. I will bring you back to your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from your uncleanness, from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. So even from the Deuteronomy here in verse 4, it's kind of a a, um, little bit of a, I'm not quite sure the right word, dour note that Moses strikes here. He's saying you've seen all this redemption And yet, simply having seen it with your own eyes is insufficient. You ultimately need to have a heart that understands, eyes to see, and ears to hear. And that's a work that only God can do. Yet the prophets promise after the exile that in the new covenant, that's precisely what God will do by his Holy Spirit, give his people a new heart. Okay, that's the first part, redemption from from Egypt. Then verses 5 and 6, God sustains Israel in the wilderness period, and they learn dependence on God. They don't have access to uh, uh, Old Navy or wherever you buy your clothes. They can't buy new shoes. They don't have bread or wine. They're dependent on God to provide manna, to provide water, to keep their clothes from wearing out. Uh, Parents with kids, that sounds nice, right? Clothes that aren't wearing out off your children. Uh, and then the last part, uh, this initial victory in the Transjordan, re- Transjordanian region, victories over Sion and Og, and the initial uh, giving of the land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribes of Manasseh. So we see redemption, sustenance, and strength for victory. Verse 9, therefore, in light of my gracious redemption, therefore, 
Keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that they do. Uh, Those who are here for the Joshua series, you might recall in Joshua 1 that that's the promise to Joshua. If you meditate on the law and you, you keep it, then God will prosper your ways. Any other observations on this basic covenant history? All right, the second section then is verses 10 through 15, and here's the basic covenant relationship. And you're noticing that a lot of this is summarizing stuff that's come before in Deuteronomy, kind of bringing it all together as we near the end. Note first, at the, the heart of this basic covenant relationship comes in verse 13, but on either side of it, there's these notes about who all is included in this covenant. Verses 10 through 12, it's radically inclusive. From the leaders to the stragglers, men and women, Israelites, sojourners, even the servants who chop wood and gather water. Uh, All the old and the young, all equally stand before the Lord. Okay, So entering into covenant with the Lord is a, um, uh, it levels the playing field. Everyone is equal standing before the Lord, entering into covenant with him. And actually, I'm going to jump to the other side of this real quick. Verses 14 through 15, it's also inclusive intergenerationally. Notice it says that this covenant is with everyone standing here, all these people, but it's not with you alone. It's also for whoever is not here with us today, looking ahead at future generations. Uh, And just in passing, it's interesting that it it, it matches up with the two... um, two features of the covenant community that Peter seems to draw some attention to that I pointed out this morning, that it's a multi-ethnic community. So it's saying the sojourners, the servants, everyone who stands here, Israelite and non-Israelite, and also the people who are here today and the kids to come. It's multi-generational. But what is the heart of the covenant relationship? It's here in verse 13. I'll back up a little bit at verse 12. You're standing here, all of you today, so you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God. There's the heart of the covenant relationship. God says in, uh, uh, I will be your God and you will be my people. To establish a people and to be their God. It's the basic statement of the covenant relationship. And entering this covenant fulfills the promises Moses says that were made to Israel, as he promised to you, and as he made to the forefathers, as I swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in establishing this covenant relationship, God is faithful to his promises. And this basic covenant relationship, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will dwell with you, it, 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 it continues moving forward into the Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah, the name Emmanuel means I, uh, uh, God with us. And that that's the hope that Jesus coming, I will be your God, you will be my people, that God will dwell with us. Any observations on that basic covenant relationship in verses 10 through 15 there? Yeah. Um, 
It could be either. It's hard to understand how it would. I, I think it, people who are not here in place, okay, Uriah the Hittite, he's, he's not here in place, and yet he comes later, of course, during David's day, much later, but he comes and he's incorporated into this covenant community. Ruth, not, not present initially, but is incorporated into it. So it could include those who are not here physically, um, but the logic that's already both Israelites and sojourners present um, seems to be implying those to come in, in future generations. The syntax itself. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, good question. Yeah, John. Yeah. Yeah, that they all stand equally before the Lord to enter into covenant. Yeah. Yeah, great observation. Yeah, Dan. Yeah. 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 Yeah, certainly that's an element of the Lord's Supper as well, that it's a covenant renewal. Good observations. It's almost, uh, you can almost pass over it too quickly, but that, that the fundamental like heart of the covenant and of the Old Testament and really the whole Bible is that God wants to be our God and to have us be his people. What then is the basic covenant demand, uh, covenant uh, instruction? We see in verses 16 through 21. Verses 16 and 17 you lived in the land of Egypt. You passed through other nations. You have seen the temptation. You've seen idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Moses calls them detestable. That is to say they're repulsive, they're repugnant. But of course, the idols are initially attractive, and that's why people go after them. And yet Moses is using this emotional language to try and shape Israel's desires. He's saying, see these idols for what they are. They're repugnant. They're detestable. Uh, and of course, our idols don't look that way at first glance, and yet we need to train ourselves to say, actually, this really is detestable if I really think through this idol. Verses in 18 and 19, then, there's a strict warning. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, uh, or or literally this word sworn is, is the curses of the covenant, he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Beware, Moses says, lest a heart is turning away. 
we need to guard our hearts. Our hearts have a tendency to turn away. We need to watch out. What does he say? He says, watch out for this root that bears poisonous fruit. Uh, You know, if you're weeding the garden and you don't get the roots up, the weed's going to be back pretty quickly. So he's saying, watch out. Even the root, if it's there, it will bear poisonous fruit. You've got to get the root out. And what is this root that bears poisonous fruit? It's saying, although I've heard this, the words of this sworn covenant, although I've heard the covenant curses that I'm liable to, nevertheless blessing myself in my heart and saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. God's going to forgive me. He won't punish me. I'm fine. It's okay. Saying That's the root that bears fruit, poisonous fruit. Of, of taking God's grace for um, uh, granted. Uh, granted? Granite? Granted. Okay. I knew it's one of those words. Thank you. Uh, yeah, granted's a stone. Well, maybe you take it for granite. I, granted. <laughs> Whatever it is. Uh, uh, taking, uh, 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 um, yeah, taking advantage of God's grace. Moses says, watch out. It bears poisonous fruit. And then this uh, somewhat, uh, it leads to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. I think what it's saying is the dry wood and the green wood will all be consumed since it goes on to talk about the fire of the Lord's anger. Smoke will smoke against the man. It's saying uh, his anger will burn hot. Don't think you can escape it. So the basic warning then is don't turn away from other gods. And it's in, it's intrinsic to the logic of covenant. If covenant is basically a relationship, I will be your God and you will be my people, it's hard to see how that basic relationship can hold if you take another God alongside the true God or the God who is your God. In verses 20 and 21 then, what is God's response to presumptuous sin, especially idolatry, worshiping another God and saying, God's not going to punish me for this. I can worship another God. It says he will not forgive says, for he is a jealous God, like a jealous spouse. He's saying, I'm not going to tolerate another lover. He says, you will be liable to the curses of the covenant. Your name will be blotted out. And this man who acts like this will be singled out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity and punishment. Again, the logic of it is, is clear. It's not that God is uh, unwilling to forgive but rather, if you're worshiping another god, then you're not turning to the true God in repentance to be forgiven. Um, it's similar to Jesus' teaching on the uh, uh, unpardonable sin is resisting the Holy Spirit that leads you to repentance. How can you repent and be forgiven if you're resisting the Holy Spirit that leads to repentance? Any comments on that basic covenant demand in verses 16 through 21? Yeah, John. Yeah. Yeah, to say, yeah, or at least, yeah, hypocrites are, or deceiving themselves, saying, I'm going to be safe, I can get away with this, yeah. 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 
Ja. 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 Someone was asking me about my retirement planning this week, and I was saying, saying the church puts money there every week, and I trust it'll be there if the if if the U.S. dollar even exists in 30 years. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. There's a lot of uh, of trusting that goes on in that, but yeah, uh, yeah. This yeah, hiding in this in, in safety. I shall be safe. The temptation that goes there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Jesse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay, the last section then is the basic covenant punishment then, verses 22 through 28. And the basic punishment, I know uh, Nate got that section last week of all of the covenant curses and all of that horrible stuff that came with it. But at the heart of it, the punishment, the basic covenant punishment is in verse 28. The Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The basic covenant punishment is exile. So the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, it's building this argument. Why is Israel in exile? Uh, at least by the st- uh, standpoint of the, the redactor, the final author of, uh, of First and Second Kings, he's looking back from the standpoint of exile and saying, how did we wind up here? And it's showing how these kings turned away from the Lord. They did just this. said, I'll be safe. I can do this sort of thing. And they wound up in exile. Um, the prophets, that's what they're warning about, is exile. Or they're looking at the exile and saying, is there hope beyond this? But really this idea of exile is key to the covenant, uh, the key covenant punishment. Of course, it does raise some questions because we're talking First Peter, he's calling us exiles. And does that mean that we're all under the covenant punishment? Well, in a sense, yes, we are because we've all been exiled from Eden. And we're all living downwind of the first sin of Adam and Eve, rebelling against the first covenant arrangement of, of God and man. So in a sense, yes, we are all living in a sort of exile. And yet, I, I think I made the point the first week of Peter uh, that in a sense we experience a second sort of exile, that as we are reconciled to God, that brings us out of step with the world round about us. And so we feel at times exiled from non-Christian friends and family, from our place of work, perhaps, uh, you know, different things around us in our community. And so there's more than one type of exile. Um, and also we see even here that the exile comes on the people as a whole eventually, but that doesn't mean, for example, that Daniel himself is apostate. Uh, Daniel is caught up in exile simply because he's part of a people that are sent into exile. So there's, 
uh, it, it, it is a basic concept of this basic covenant punishment, but, but it is a multifaceted concept. The Lord will uproot them from their land and cast them into another land. I can't help but see a little bit of a, uh, uh, a play on words there that they didn't deal with sin in its root form or rebellion in its root form. They didn't guard their hearts and it bore poisonous fruit and therefore they themselves will be uprooted from the land. There's also an irony in verse 22. The next generation, your children who rise up after you and foreigners who come from a far land will say when they see this affliction, what in the world happened here? Uh, you're going to be a witness to God's power to the ch- your children and grandchildren, to foreigners, one way or another. <laughs> Either explicitly by saying, you know, here's the mighty acts of God, I'm proclaiming his excellencies, like First Peter talked about this morning, or by bearing the punishment for rejecting God. And people are going to say, what went wrong in their life that they wound up down the road and in destruction? says that their whole land will be burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown, nothing growing, where no plant can sprout and overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. Total rabbit trail. Uh, There was an article maybe two weeks ago about uh, perhaps a meteor hit Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and some evidence of that, maybe around 1800 BC, so it would be not quite the right time period, but uh, you know, these layers, they always shift of, of, of dating things. But quite interesting to see, like, okay, maybe there actually is some, you know, archaeologists maybe finding some evidence that there was fire falling from heaven on these cities there. Again, total side trail, uh, not really relevant to this passage, but I thought that was interesting to see. So people will see this. They'll see this land salted out, scorched, and they'll say, what has the Lord done? What caused this great anger? Why did this happen? And people will say it's because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in the book. They were uprooted and sent into exile. That's interesting, this little phrase here, gods whom they had not known, whom he had not allotted to them. Just like this morning, uh, it's saying in some sense that people stumbling over Christ, the cornerstone is, is, has been appointed, that it's part of God's plan. It seems to be saying in some sense, even the false gods that the nations worship is under God's sovereign control. That these false gods have been allotted to different nations. Um, and it's probably one of those parts of God's plan of providence that we'll really only understand on the other side of the eschaton, that that we can't see fully now why he gives different nations over to different false gods, but apparently does so. On which point we come to the very last verse, 29 here. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And we're going to come back to this in chapter 30. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We're not responsible for knowing the secret things, for searching out God's secret wisdom. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. Sometimes people can kind of get their minds, the wheels of their minds spinning, that I've got to figure out the secret things of God. I've got to work out the secret path of God's providence and whatever in order to respond. I mean, take even this pandemic. Like somehow I've got to know the secret things that are going on 
behind the scenes and what God's doing and what he's doing here with this nation and this nation, and then somehow I can make sense of everything that's going on and act rightly. Yet Moses is saying, no, you're not responsible to know the secret things of God, his secret providence. What you are responsible for is the things that have been revealed to us clearly in his word. Uh, that that's what we're called to do, the words of this law. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a great observation. Yeah, that it's, it, it's telling us a basic stance to adopt. We don't know the secret things. We know what's revealed. And so, by definition, we're submitted to what God has shown us rather than thinking we have it all worked out. Yeah, great point. Humility. Any other last thoughts or observations? <laughs>